The Cook Strait, for example, I got 80% of the way across that strait, and I was a grumpy old man. I was swearing and cursing at the boat crew. I didn't think Mother Nature was going to let us in. We were, we were swimming in parallel to the coastline. Uh, the current was horrific, uh, and I wasn't very happy. Um, the learning I took out of that for the Catalina swim was I'm not in charge. There's this bigger uh, reason, this bigger existence. Uh, Mother Nature has her own ideas. In this episode, we look at the business of charity. We talk to the incredible Calamide, a Kiwi fueled by a passion for endurance sports and fundraising. Not only is he a 16-time Ironman finisher, but he's also represented New Zealand in triathlons at World Championships. But in 2010, life threw him a curveball after being diagnosed with testicular cancer. But Callum faced it head-on, defeating it through surgery and chemotherapy, and today he's living cancer-free. Callum's resolve was to be tested once again in 2021 after Sarah, his wife, was tragically diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer, a battle that she continues to fight to this day. Determined to make a difference, Callum and his wife Sarah started the charity Channeling a Cause, a movement dedicated to funding cancer research and encouraging early detection. This spurred Callum to take his charity efforts up a notch by embarking on the Global Ocean 7 Challenge, which we'll hear more about in just a moment. Together, their determination remains unwavering, and so far they've raised a staggering $850,000. So get ready for an inspiring story of triumph, resilience and impactful change as Callum Eid, the charity founder, tells us what it takes to do the job. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now, before we get into the nitty gritty of how to go about building a charity business, let's start off by chatting about that current amazing uh, fundraising effort that you've just, well, you're currently in the middle of. Thank Tell you. us more. Uh, I'm in the throes of um, challenging myself to swim what's called Ocean 7, uh, which was a, an ocean swim um, challenge that was derived by Steve Manitones in the US, an American, and he built it to parallel the seven peaks of the world. And he came up with seven swims across different continents. Uh, so I'm slowly getting around the world, uh, challenging myself to uh, to execute those. Four of them I've done. Which four have you done? So I started, and, and good question, I, it really began, this whole idea began uh, with just a swim. It was only ever going to be, let's go and swim the English Channel. Um, I came off the back of a, a long uh, career as an age group triathlete, Ironman triathlete. So I went and did the English Channel. We raised a bit of money. We had a bit of fun. And then I got the bug, as you typically do. So I then went on to swim one of the hardest of the seven, which was the uh, what they call the North Channel, which is Ireland to Scotland. And I did that uh, a year ago, actually. I did that in August 2022. Then I went on to swim the Cook Strait in New Zealand, which is from the South Island of New Zealand to the North Island, uh, another very cold body of water. Uh, that was in March this year. And we've just gone to uh, the US, to LA, to swim what they call the Catalina Channel. <clears throat> Arguably, it's the easy one, mm. but by goodness, uh, it invariably is the, the hardest of the four that I've done. Uh, it took me 13 hours, um, most of the swim was at night, 
in the pitch black of dark, and uh, it was a it was a real mental test. So, are they all different lengths of? Are they all different distances? I when people ask me, I, I compare them to to children. They all have different characteristics. They have different moods. Uh, the English straight uh, is very um, uh, predictable. There's not much in terms of wildlife. Uh, the the crew that typically man the piece of the, the body of water know how the current's going to work. Uh, the Irish Channel is very, very cold. Um, I encountered a, a day that was 12 degrees in the water. It took me uh, a little under 12 hours, and it's riddled with jellyfish. Um, there were four or five different species of jellyfish, one of which is the lion's mane jellyfish, which has tentacles that can be up to 20 metres long. Uh, and then the Cook Strait, which the currents are horrendous. And in fact, you can very much spend uh, up to half the swim encountering uh, currents in the last couple of k's uh, of the closing part of the swim. So, And then, of course, Catalina. And because of the trade winds in uh, the US on the West Coast uh, and the heat of the day, they have you swim through the night. So all very different. And your last three? So the last three I have... Um, Molokai, which is Molokai Island to Oahu in Hawaii. Uh, that's the Kaiwai Channel. That's all night. And as you can imagine, it's uh, a pretty active body of water in terms of wildlife, uh, both, both sharks and, and, uh, and jellyfish. There's the Gibraltar Strait, uh, which is the shortest of all of them, but still very challenging in terms of currents. Uh, and then number seven is the Sagaru Strait, which is from Honshu to Hokkaido in Japan. Wow. And you must meet, need to be, I mean, as you say, some of these swims happen at night. You must. How do you overcome those mental challenges that you will inevitably have? You are solo person. I know you say you have your support crew in, in the kayaks and the boats next to you. But ultimately, it is just you in the water. And you have to power through and you, there's no, you know, you're doing this for a good reason. And I guess quitting isn't on the agenda. No. Uh, how do I get through each swim? You know, I think there's so much that goes into getting there. And uh, I'm not an ocean swimmer by nature. You know, this is something I've picked up in the last five years of my life. Uh, it's, a, it's a relatively new sport for me. So I'm a novice. Um, I'm learning every uh, different channel is teaching me new things. The Cook Strait, for example, I got 80% of the way across that strait, and I was a grumpy old man. I was swearing and cursing at the boat crew. I didn't think Mother Nature was going to let us in. We were we were swimming in parallel to the coastline. Uh, the current was horrific, uh, and I wasn't very happy. Um, the learning I took out of that for the Catalina swim was I'm not in charge. There's this bigger... Uh, reason this bigger existence uh, mother nature has her own ideas so i just need to be patient and just chip away at it uh, i got halfway through it i couldn't believe how long it took to get halfway across the catalina uh, channel and i'd made up my mind that i was going to be patient and enjoy the experience um, as you know i'm doing this for cancer research um, in my mind this was going to be over in a matter of hours be it a lot but i wasn't having to go through chemotherapy or radiotherapy or deal with a terminal illness. I had the opportunity to do something at a chapter of time in my life. Mm. So it had a, a finite period uh, in which it was going to end. 
That's that's the way to get through those challenging times, I get, I guess. Uh, so your charity, Channeling a Cause, has achieved remarkable fundraising success. When did you realise it was becoming something substantial, like like it has turned into? When we had when we did the fundraising off the back of the English Channel, I'm a I'm a cancer survivor. Um, it was always just about having a greater cause and realizing that I had the ability to do things that a lot of people couldn't, but a lot of people want to be a part of something. Um, off the back of the English Channel, which was in 2019, uh, we came up with the idea of channeling a course, and it was just a bit of fun. To be honest, it wasn't until recently and I was asked to speak uh, at an event at the British Club here in Singapore, and someone introduced me as the co-founder of Channeling a Cause that I realized the tactile, you know, existence of this thing that was just a fun idea. And, you know, there's now T-shirts and there's a website and it's really created quite an uprising that I think I couldn't have imagined and probably still don't fully comprehend the impact it's having. So, Tell, tell us a, a day in the life of, of a charity like yours and what, what, what are your typical tasks? You know, I, I think I'm fortunate enough to be in an ecosystem, um, a demograph in Singapore, where there's a lot of people that are in a position to be able to help and be a part of something like this. Um, I'm also fortunate enough that as we went through COVID, uh, I ended up working with a marketing company uh, of which I've since become a director in, which has uh, a lot of assets that I can take advantage of. Building a website, um, building um, uh, collateral uh, T-shirts, branding, I've got a website host. So there's a lot of things I've been able to leverage that have really found me as this thing has gained its own momentum. Um, so a day in the life in my world is more about contacting people, meeting people that hear the story and have their own way of creating an angle in which they want to be involved. How important do you think marketing is for a charity to, to become as substantial and as successful as yours has? It's fundamental. I would call it as fundamental as the foundation on a property. Uh, and I'll give you an example. Uh, we have just had a black tie fundraiser, which we did uh, two weeks prior to the Catalina swim. I met a gentleman through an associate who happened to be a property manager for a number of um, Asia holiday resorts. He said to me in passing, I'd love to help. I didn't know what he did. I didn't know how he would help. I didn't even comprehend thinking of the angle he would come at it from. In his own mind, he architected how he thought he could help. He asked me to send him an email. I sent him my website. I sent him a couple of links to the people I'm working with. He had enough information at his fingertips with, I would say, less than 100 words that I sent him that he was able to then send that on to people that he knew. And before I knew it, I couldn't comprehend. We had a flood of um, uh, holiday resorts in Thailand, in the Maldives, in the Seychelles, that were offering us for free accommodation, transfers, and meal vouchers to give away as part of our auction event to the value of, I can tell you, $40,000. Wow. And I met him 48 hours before our event. So the idea of having something tangible, I threw the guy a T-shirt, I gave him one of my armbands, 
Um, I sent him a website that had a very clear story and a narrative of the last four years. We were clearly relevant and legitimate. That was all he needed. So I'm, I'm very interested in this side of, of philanthropy and the charity business. If if someone out there wanted to raise money for a good cause and do it as a full-time job, how do how does the fund distribution work with a charity? I mean, obviously, some of the funds have to go to the operational side, such as the marketing and the merchandise, and also carrying out the challenges themselves, if you're paying the support boats and such like. How does that actually work, Where how you can get as much money as possible going to the cause that you want, but also be able to survive and run the operation like a business? So I've probably done this a little differently. That won't surprise you. I decided I wanted to do this. I wanted to create a vehicle where we could raise as much money as possible. Um, I was working with a charity and still continue to work with a charity in Australia called Torticure. Torticure have the contacts. They work with the researchers in terms of our focus is obviously cancer research. Uh, we want to provide as much funding as we can uh, to A, cancer research, but also work on creating momentum around awareness, uh, eating well, living well, um, preventing early detection, et cetera, et cetera. So the association we had with Tour de Cure was that I was able to create a vehicle where the money went. I don't touch a cent. I make a point of it. I don't want anybody that I work with to even consider the illegitimacy of something that we may do. So I already work with a legitimate body that has a relationship with the Olivia Newton-John Cancer Research Foundation in Melbourne. Um, a number of the research foundations around the world. And they put me in touch with research programs and pledges that I can then raise money for. So instead of me, which, and I think this is one of the challenges in fundraising, people want to raise money. Mm. It goes into a black hole. Yeah. One of the things we've been adamant in achieving is we've inverted the model. So I've said, if I'm going to raise money, we need to raise a sizable amount, but I want to know the pledge. Mm. So as an example... The fundraising event that we've just done, the $100,000 that was a pledge that was requested from Jessica Duart, who is a researcher from the Olivia Newton-John Foundation in Melbourne, um, she'd already put the pledge in. We agreed to commit the funds. I don't need to touch the money. I just ran the event. So I flew uh, Jessica to Singapore to the event. She stood up and presented at her own event. The actual black tie event itself was self-funding. I sold tickets to that. Anything that was in terms of costs on the event were relatively low. Mm. I'm happy to tell you that the Singapore Cricket Club funded a four-course meal, uh, a bottomless alcohol bill for $135 a head. I sold those for $195. Mm. So we made money on those tickets. And then we went on to auction off different items. I can tell you that everything else that we do in terms of the T-shirts and the armbands, the website, any of that branding, we fund that ourselves. So that's my thing. Mm. So effectively, you're out of pocket, I see. I am. Right? <laughs> I am. And it's not no. a lot of money. No. You know, I would say to you that I'm always going to go and swim the seven channels. Um, I can give you an idea that the Catalina Swim cost me 30000 US dollars. That's a big amount of money in terms of what I contribute 
in merchandise above that, I would probably spend $10,000 a year. And so you don't recoup any of those costs from any of the fundraising? I make a point of not touching any of that money. I see. So my commitment to anybody that wants to give to the Channeling a Cause concept is that every single penny that we raise goes straight to Tour de Cure and Mm. straight into the hands of the researcher. Mm. Now, a really important part of the next step of that is I make a point, and it's going to be something we'll discuss further, of making sure that the researchers are in continual communication with the people that are donating Mm. so that it closes the loop on what that money is being used for. So it's a very, very clean model. So it's completely transparent. Totally. Yeah. So in your experience, what poses the most significant challenge when it comes to fundraising for a charity? I think one of the biggest challenges I found initially was differentiating against other people that were doing the same thing. So one of the things I know that my wife and I do as a family is we agree to commit $1,000 a year to a charity or multiple charities so that when our friends come and ask us for $100, the question is how do you secure that money? How do you make sure people have your charity as front of mind? That's a big challenge. Yeah. And you do that by... I think the way we do it is the branding piece. Mm. Channeling a cause has got a real momentum now, as I said. But also, I think there's a lot to be said for showing what I'm doing in the water that gets people absolutely motivated and creates an uprising around being able to make a difference. Mm. It's one thing to go to a gala dinner and have a good night out and bid on a Michael Jordan shirt. It's another to see Callum Eid in an ocean, in the dark, for 13 hours, committed to completing a swim. Mm. That's a point of difference that I think uh, makes Channeling a Cause pretty unique. But if someone did want to start a charity for something that they are passionate about and they just want to have a life and a vocation in charity, um, do you think it's possible for them to fund it completely all themselves and be able to get remuneration. Absolutely. I think, um, and this is something that we've in part considered doing, Mm. particularly now that this is gaining momentum and that people are looking at us to continue to to drive this. Um, The goal has been a million dollars. I have every expectation that we will continue to raise money beyond that. Um, I think the trick and the key beyond what we're doing is complete transparency and governance. So I think one of the things um, we've done is we've actually uh, started a company called Eid Sport Management, my surname, um, which gives us the ability to then create a set of books and not just be transparent in the way we are today, but to be legally governed and compliant and transparent. So absolutely. So I must ask you about donor fatigue. Personally, when I've done charity runs, not anything equivalent to what you do at all but the small charity run and you get the cancer research link that you send out to people I personally find it a bit embarrassing to constantly ask people to help me donate to causes and people get donor fatigue they're like oh not another one Um, how do you overcome that so I agree and I had this exactly the same um, guilty feeling when we started doing this Uh, What I realized is that people were willing to continue to contribute as long as they knew what was coming out of the funds they were providing. So Jessica Duart, the person I've spoken about, 
this is not her first rodeo. She does this for a living. So she is uh, looking for early detection. She's already cracked melanoma. She's cracked uh, prostate, uh, breast. Now she's going into lung. So the idea of this thing cross-pollinating as well is continually evolving. The idea of telling people where the funds are going and showing them the outcome gives you the ability to then go back and ask for more money. Well, you're clearly a very gregarious person with a big personality and a lot of confidence. Um, Do you think that is what is required to start a charity business or can it be all different kinds of personality traits? I think one of the things that got me into this was another vehicle. So Tour de Cure, the organization I've talked about, had everything in place. They had a website in place. I could go and I could reach out to my mother and my father and my brother and my sister and have them donate $50. That was an opportunity for me to combine that with keeping fit. I think this is very much, particularly around the fact that we've got a world of digitization, this is very much something that anybody can get involved in And what's exciting is any age. As for sponsorships, you've talked about black tie event. You've talked about sending out a link to get donors. Are there any other methods that are good for raising money? What I've found is the scale I can create by working with sponsors. Uh, Finnis is a company I work with today. Finnis make goggles. They make fins. They make swimwear. A pair of goggles is 25 bucks. Uh, a pair of swim trunks is 50 bucks. I could go and buy two or three of those and I'd be done. I haven't done that. I've probably taken the hard path. I've actually sat down with Finnis. I approached them. My marketing vehicle has enabled me to put together a PowerPoint presentation. I'm able to sit down with them, show them what I'm doing. Who wouldn't want to be involved? It's back to the point of a corporation being able to have this layer in their organization. They can then represent that on their own website. Uh, They can create it as part of um, the community that I'm working with. Uh, They've provided me. I've walked out of there only an hour and a half ago. I have some new goggles. I have some new fins. I have some new togs. On top of that, we're going to run another swim charity in 30 days' time. They have offered to distribute the link, uh, the promotional email, uh, and everything that goes with it, as well as some merchandise to those that partake, to their database. So here we have a community that want to swim, would love to do it for a bit of fun and raise a bit of money, don't necessarily know where to start, and this thing just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Are there any other tips that you can give to people wanting to start up a charity as to what, even down to what software they need? Um, I mean, can you go into that kind of detail of of practical tips? Yeah. Maybe like a... A beginner's starter guide to starting your own charity. Absolutely. So, you know, there's a great company I'm working with called Grassroots. Grassroots has a website and they continue to evolve. Um, It's incredible. I provide a link. uh, That then gets sent out to someone. They have the choice of either donating or becoming a, a team member where they actually have their own donation page themselves. It's all built and this stuff is all free. And often what you're finding is it's self-funded by those that want to donate. So there's a 1% or 2% fee that comes off the back of that. So when I started doing this in 2019, which isn't that long ago, 
I did not know where to build a website. I couldn't find anybody to help be my webmaster. Now, a lot of these frameworks and a lot of these templates are built. So I would think about starting with what it is you want to do, what cause, what impact you want to have in terms of uh, the people that you want to affect and the outcome you want to achieve. That will then give you the ability to approach in a community that's probably well down the path in doing this. One of the differences between this community and let's say the commercial world is everybody's pointing in the same direction. It's not like we're competing. We're actually all trying to grow this thing together. So the idea of a lot of this being built, um, I do think what I have found is there are a number of charities, another, another I do think what I have found is that a number of um, cancer charities in different countries are lagging in terms of embracing digital technology and platforms and making it easier for people to donate. That's interesting. So what platforms would you recommend? So there are a lot. I would actually suggest going to your local, if it's cancer, for example, go to your local cancer, uh, cancer charity and having a conversation with them about what it is that they've created. Uh, if you don't find that there is something there that is simple and easily and you've got two or three clicks and you can get to a platform that works, move on. Go to another one and move on because there are so many that are already built and they should be free. Okay. Callum, time for your quick fire round. Question number one, your biggest career regret. Interesting. I did seriously look at doing this full time when I came off the back of the English Channel. Part of me regrets not doing that. I think there may be a time coming and maybe it wasn't the right time. But uh, I do feel like I'm uh, becoming more and more ready to do that. Excellent. And your career standout moment. So two things. One is... A very, very good friend of mine, uh, he lives in Australia, he would be 65, rang me up recently and he said to me, I've been to a doctor, um, I've had a prostate exam, I have prostate cancer, um, I need to have surgery, I will have chemotherapy. I want to thank you because the reason I found it so early is because of channeling a cause. Wow. That's so that was sense. massive. Yeah. That's yeah. when you, know, I mean, I don't really think it's, Necessarily, the money is important, the research is important, but when you impact and save someone else's life. That's amazing. Yeah, it doesn't get better than that. Your top tip to break into your industry? Um, I think don't do it alone. I think one of the things, and it probably parallels into or dovetails into the regret piece, I've tried to do a lot of this on my own, and it's a very, very heavy lift. It's exhausting, in fact. Um, I think. Work with one or two other brands, find a couple of organizations that may be a pseudo sponsor with you um, that want to bring their organization. The, mon the marketing company that I talked about, they love it. They use it as part of their quarterly meetings. Uh, we sit down and have planning sessions and they use it to create an uprising inside their organization. Uh, we had a committee uh, from within that organization for the black tie event. So don't do it on your own. On your own. Um, build yourself a, a task force. People are out there willing to help for free. And many of them have ideas that you haven't even thought of. And 
lastly, in terms of social impact, have you A, changed people's mind, B, changed the narrative, or C, changed the world? Uh, I think I'd like to think a little bit of both or all. In terms of changing the narrative, that's an interesting one because, as you know, uh, my wife is uh, diagnosed with cancer. Um, it's a big motivator in terms of um, having her maintain a positive frame of mind as well. But I think one of the things which is a byproduct that I didn't expect or appreciate until this gained so much momentum, people don't know how to talk about cancer. So when I'm in a community with people, with my friends and colleagues, people say to me, how's your wife? Now, I'll tell you how she is. She's sick. She has stage four cancer and uh, she's terminal. With this vehicle, with, with channeling a cause, we're able to talk about the next swim. We're able to talk about the next fundraising activity. And they often say, how do I help? What do we do next? Where are we going? When's the next event? So it creates a very positive perspective and discussion and narrative around what we're doing so that it then has them feel like they're helping both my wife and I and my family, but doing it in a way that's uh, less confrontational for everybody. Lastly, I just want to look at the future of philanthropy and the charity business. So how do you foresee the charity businesses evolving over the next decade? I know you've already touched on technology helping. Is there anything else that you think will change? I think the charities and the uh, researchers, uh, in this case, um, that are going to be successful are the ones that can, can create a direct link between where the money's going and what that outcome looks like. And if you can create a real-time environment where the researcher is talking to those that are contributing to what that money's going toward, they'll win every time. One of the things we've done, and it's pretty rudimentary, off of the back of our fundraiser, and talking about regrets, I wished I'd done this four or five years earlier, I have the researcher providing monthly updates to those that gave us $180,000 at our black tie event. The feedback from that, mind-blowing. No one else is doing that. So that's a massive point of difference for us. She has made a commitment to come back to Singapore in 12 months to talk about what she's achieving. So by exposing the donors to what's happening on a real-time basis, that's absolutely differentiating us in the market. So as we navigate challenging economic times, how do you anticipate people's willingness to donate um, changing, considering that charity is fundamentally about people helping other people? Part of what I've seen change the attitude, and it comes back to the donor fatigue question as well, um, of the donors that I've worked with, is quid pro quo. So if they feel like there's something that they can gain from and be a part of selfishly. Uh, you know what? It might still be a donation. They might still be paying more money for something. They might even be paying retail for it, knowing they're going to buy a Garmin watch anyway. They might as well bid for it at an auction. So I think by changing the game in terms of asking someone to put their hand in their pocket for a fiver versus being a part of something and having a good night out and getting value for money, I think quid pro quo is a big part of that. And that's what's completely changed my conversation with the community that I work with, 
my ability to continue to go to them. And by the way, their perspective and their um, attitude towards coming to me, asking when I'm doing it next. That's very different. So interesting that you think that people want a tangible return now on their donations. I think it makes it very, it makes it easier for that discussion to occur. And I really do. And lastly, do remind us of the cause that you're working for right now and what's coming up and any other future plans beyond the challenge that you're embarking on at the moment. <laughs> so channelingacause.com is the website. Please go and have a look. Please register and keep up to date with all of the information. Uh, we now use that as the vehicle, uh, the swim tracker. We use that as every point of contact uh, with our community. So if I'm doing a swim, we make sure the tracker is in there. Where we're, Historically, we used to email it out or WhatsApp it out. Um, there are three swims left. We'll have the Hawaii swim in March. Then there'll be two swims after that. Uh, just quietly, uh, I'm planning something uh, that's been a bit of an itch I want to scratch for a while, which is I want to be the first at something. Uh, one of the swims that's never been completed, it has been attempted, is from Ireland to the Isle of Man, uh, which is 70, 70 kilometers. Uh, it's in 12 degrees of water. It's the same um, lion's mane jellyfish that we encountered in the island swim. And uh, I think we'll continue with these uh, these small community swims. They're a lot of fun. It gets people in the pool. Uh, it creates a really uh, exciting uprising with kids and parents and teachers. And it's just fun to do. So more of that, I think. Fantastic. Calamide, you've, I think you've inspired us all. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you.